Dotnet Rocks episode 631 with guest Stephen Taub, recorded live Monday, January 24th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's goodness, it's .NET. And hey, Richard. My friend. You know, I hang out with a lot of musicians. I know that. Yeah. You are a musician. Probably some of the best musicians in the area. Cyrus Chestnut. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just... uh, All right, I can tell this story. Cool. I got two YouTube stories to tell. There you go. Cyrus Chestnut, Google him. He is the man when it comes to jazz piano. He's from Philadelphia. He's world famous, probably one of the best jazz piano players in the world today. Um, I've been listening to his CD, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. He redid Vince Guaraldi's tunes, and Steve Gadd plays on it, and the Harlem Boys Choir is on it. I mean, it's freaking awesome. And uh, he came to New London to do um, a, a concert in 2008 and uh i got to meet him and he came over to the studio i did an interview with him um i had my crew go over and do a video uh recording of his concert at the guard theater uh, which where he was playing and uh, he had a great time but um there was a problem with the performance because there was a the piano key was sticking or something so he wasn't happy with that but he did get to play a couple of tunes on my piano in the studio and i recorded them and I've just been sitting on him, and he's basically saying, hold tight, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with this for a couple of years. So I finally just emailed him and said, dude, you're killing me. i got to release some of this. Like, let me just cut out the part of us talking and take the thing where you play Swing Low Sweet Chariot and uh, and put that on YouTube. So he says, okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash H-Q-R-I-F-4, you will see uh, Cyrus playing at Pop Studios, playing Swing Low Sweet Cherry, and it is just, it'll make you cry. So that's it. And then um, somebody sent me today a link to this clip of Bill Cosby, who I guess I didn't know was a jazz drummer. But, uh, you know, he was, he played drums. I don't know if he was a drummer. You know, he wasn't popular as a drummer, of course. But the Cos played drums with some really really uh famous people back in the day so he talked to dick cavett in 1974 about his experience playing with sonny stitt who he called the isaac stern of alto saxophone he's he's the man right so if you go to bit.ly.squsm you will see that story and you'll cry you don't even have to be a drummer it's cut it's got the drama of the old weird herald go-kart race but with drums it's well, really, it's Bill Cosby telling a story. It's got to be good. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, let's just jump into Better Know Framework after all that hoopla. All right. All right. Well, today I'm not talking about a, a class or a namespace. I'm going to talk about BAML, which is compiled XAML. Okay. When you take C Sharp or VB Netcode and compile it, it turns into IL. When you compile XAML, it turns into BAML or binary AML. But uh, BAML is, there are two ways 
for handling a XAML file, loose XAML, which is parsed at runtime and can be deployed as a simple XML file locally, remotely, or embedded into the assembly. And then you can compile it. And that's marked as a page in Visual Studio um, with the page uh, attribute include equals ax xaml file.xaml or whatever in ms build you deploy that as a binary application markup language file and that gets embedded in an assembly so obviously if you're going to do any localization or globalization you do not want your xaml compiled but you know we we sort of forget what happens under the hood and uh, i wanted to bring your attention to baml so baml is the word of the day don't forget about the BAML. Don't forget about the BAML. Richard, who's talking to us? Got an email here on uh, our year-end show, 624. Oh, yeah, cool. With Mark Miller. Dear Carl and Richard, I just wanted to comment on one thing that Richard said during episode 624 with Mark Miller about the direction of F-sharp. Richard had commented on how it seemed like Microsoft was trying to make F-sharp a mainstream language when they added it to Visual Studio, and then they apparently abandoned it when they open-sourced it. I don't believe that this is the case at all. If you look at a number of things that Microsoft is doing lately, this just seems to be the trend they're starting to follow. Mm. Lately, Microsoft is incorporating open-source into more and more of their projects, including Visual Studio. For instance, Visual Studio now ships with the open-source jQuery library, and the ASP.NET MVC3 ships with an open-source NuGet package manager. This is in addition to projects that are themselves open source, even if they are not accepting contributions, such as the ASP.NET MVC itself. Even the DLR is now open source, and it is a core component to the .NET 4.0 framework. Microsoft, at least at DevDiv, appears to be making a concerted effort to be more open and to work with the community. Just my few cents. Love the show. Keep up the great work. From Harry Steinhilber. Very cool. And uh, Harry, you're absolutely right. Uh, I got a couple of emails to the effect. The big thing I mentioned on the year-end show is that they put it out as an Apache 2 uh, licensed, um, open source license. And they, that was from the Microsoft open source license. So it was already open. Uh, and But the big thing here, and it's, I made a comparison to it in IronRuby, is that IronRuby's now no longer got Microsoft developers working on it. And it's kind of lost. Uh, and the F-sharp uh, project definitely has Microsoft people working on it still, so we're going to see some more things. But they've made the code open source, so you can look at it if you want. I don't know that they're accepting submissions or not, but it's an interesting place they've gotten to with it. And it's going to be interesting to see where F-sharp ends up. Uh, thanks very much for your email. Uh, we'll send you a mug. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for a show, want to ask us something, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Absolutely. And with that, let's introduce our guest today, Stephen Taub whom we have had on the show before uh, several times, uh, is an architect on the parallel computing platform team at Microsoft and also a contributing editor to MSDN Magazine. He's here to discuss all things parallel. Hi, Stephen. Hi, how's it going, guys? Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Last show of the day. This ought to be punchy. Well, <laughs> and I was thinking, it's been a while since you were on, probably in and around when .NET launched, but I guess the the most revolutionary thing around parallelism in our space has been uh, the async CTP back in the PDC 10 timeframe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Back in uh, late October. Mm-hmm. And have, have you seen uptake to that? Has it been going well? It's been uh, phenomenal. We've been getting uh, some really, really great feedback, just lots of thank you, thank you, thank you kind mm. of things for, for focusing on this. Uh, you know, asynchronous programming, as I'm sure you both know, has historically been uh, quite challenging. 
um, for anything more than a single asynchronous operation. Uh, the the patterns in the .NET framework, like the event-based pattern for uh, kind of launching a single operation, getting the results back, and updating the UI, um, it's been fairly straightforward to work with. Um, but anytime you try and do anything more complicated than a single operation, anytime you want to use all the, the lovely control flow constructs that we've had in, in mainstream programming languages for decades, uh, as soon as you want to use any of that with async, uh, you, you know, fall off a cliff, uh, and you're just stuck in a myriad of callbacks. So the, the async, uh, work we're doing in C Sharp and Visual Basic, uh, which is similar in, in some capacity to the async work that was done in F Sharp in the previous release, yeah. um, kind of gives you back that sequential control flow and allows you to write your asynchronous code just as if it was synchronous code. Which is a very strange idea for a lot of people. Synchronous yeah, it takes, and it takes some wrapping your mind around. I, when I explain it to people, I have to first convince them to throw away all previous notions they have uh, because they don't, they, they can't comprehend that it can be this simple. <laughs> so, give us an idea of what what we're talking about syntactically. I mean, I let's assume that the user has used the asynchronous pattern in .NET, where you have a callback yep. and you you get the iasync result, and then and then do your end, whatever it is. Let's say you right. want to so, do three or four of those things and have them come together at the end of a, st- of a method. Right. So let's say um, you, uh, you know, I think every, pretty much everyone these days is on Facebook. So imagine you had an, an API to access Facebook, um, and you wanted to do something like uh, first log into Facebook asynchronously and then retrieve a list of all of your friends asynchronously and then send each one of them a message asynchronously, and once you've sent a message to all of them, uh, print out a message on the screen saying, you know, done, or pop up a message box or whatever. Right. A simple idea. Yeah. So if this were the um, the begin-end pattern, uh, you would have a begin login and end login method, and, you, um, and begin login would return you an iAsync result, and it would accept an async callback, um, and that callback would be invoked um, when the login operation actually completed. And then within that, you would call the end login method. And maybe that end login method would return to you some kind of credentials or token or something that you could use for subsequent calls. And so now you're, you're now inside this callback, which was passed as a delegate to the begin method, and it's going to be invoked at some point later. Um, as soon as the begin method completes... Um, you know, the, the asynchronous operation is likely still off and running, and so you can't just do work immediately after the begin method uh, right. to, you know, to uh, send them to get a list of all your friends uh, because you don't have your, your login token yet. So then inside of your end callback, you get your login token, and then you um, send off another asynchronous operation, you know, begin get friends list, uh, and you pass a callback to that, and that callback, again, expressed as an uh, anonymous method or a lambda or something like that. Um, inside that, you would then call the end get friends list method, and that would give you back maybe you know a list of uh, names or list of IDs, uh, and then you might loop through that collection and call begin send message for each of them, and now you've got you've passed in a whole bunch of callbacks, each of which is going to come back at some point, and you're going to have to call you know end send message. It's just this nightmare of callbacks and nested Spider-Man. functions, and you, you can't write kind of the normal code you would want to write, which is just log in, get list, for each send message, await all. You know, right, the f- yeah, exactly. Exactly. The fact, that, the fact that it's asynchronous makes it difficult to express, yet you really want to um, perform certain tasks and just make them work. 
Exactly. That's the beauty of higher-level programming languages. Um, you, know, you don't have to write in assemble anymore. You allow the compiler to take this higher-level set of expressed concepts and translate it into the thing that the computer actually executes. You don't really care, for the most part, how it executes it. You just want to make sure it does it efficiently and, and does what you told it to do. Mm. Um, and so that's really kind of uh, what the, the new async feature in C-Sharp and Visual Basic does. It gives you back all that sequential kind of typical language support that you have, the sequential control flow, and allows you to write your functions just as if they were synchronous, but they end up being asynchronous. So I can just say, uh, um, await, uh, with, with this new keyword in the language, await, I can just say await uh, login, semicolon, you know, await uh, get friends list, passing in the results that I got from the login, and it ret- and uh, the await function then returns to me the, the list, or the await keyword then, in effect, returns to me the, the results of the get list. So if I were to imagine writing this out sequentially, I would say um, login token equals login, open friend, close paren, yeah. uh, list of friend, friends equals uh, get friends passing in the login token, and so on. Um, all I do now is I, I insert my await keyword at the places where the function is asynchronous, and the the language takes care of all the transformations for me, in effect, turning into something very much like that callback soup uh, that we we previously had before. But you get to express it in, an, in a very nice fashion, and the compiler does all the work to turn it inside out for you, uh, very much like what we have with the iterators today in C sharp. Right. Um, in fact, the machinery that underlies async uh, is almost the same machinery that underlies iterators. And as a result, in fact, if you look at the async CTP where we added uh, asynchrony to both C-sharp and Visual Basic. At the same time, Visual Basic also got iterators because it was just a minor additional amount of work to expose that in the language once the underlying iteration, asynchronous iteration functionality was there. So I got a story for you. It was probably yeah. 2004, maybe, when I um, asked a few people if we'd like to get together at Microsoft and organize a peer summit. And Chris Sells took the initiative and said, I'll set up a room for you and have some pastries and coffee in there. And um, I don't know, seven or eight uh, people that normally present, um, you know, to uh, users and companies and, uh, you know, um, to, to, to sessions at conferences and things. We all got together and did sessions for each other where, you know, we knew that we had a certain level of competence and uh, we could ask questions without, you know, feeling... Uh, you know, it, without tipping our hand, you know, sure. about how stupid we are about certain things. <laughs> so I got up and I did something on the asynchronous method and, and threads and multi-threading. And as soon as I got to weight handles, eyes were glazing over. I mean, weight mm-hmm. handles are essentially what you guys are using in the background, I think, probably to do this work. Or at well, least that's what, that's the, the, f- the function of a weight handle is to wait for some other thread. Right? Well, yes and no. So, Weight handles uh, provide typically are used to provide a a blocking me- mechanism for waiting, where you get a weight handle for something, uh, which is basically an OS primitive that allows you to call into the kernel and block your current thread until that primitive is signaled in one way or another. So you might a, a manual reset, for example, uh, is a as a weight handle, yeah. or has a weight handle depending on whether you're kind of in the kernel or in the .NET stack. Um, and it allows the thread to block, meaning the, the instruction sequence for that thread uh, won't make forward progress until 
someone else comes along and sets that manual reset event, which allows the thread then to wake up and continue executing. Right. And and while it's blocked on that wait handle, that thread isn't usable for anything else. Right. It's just sitting there with all of its resources kind of you know spent. It's got by default a megabyte of stack, uh, a bunch of other resources tied up in it, and and worse if this if you're in a situation where that particular thread was the only thread capable of doing certain tasks, yeah. you've blocked that thread from that thread from doing those tasks uh, until someone comes along and sets it. Yeah. So anyway, the 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 eyes rolled back in their head, and I thought to myself, yeah, you know, this is. This is way, you know, guys like Chris Sells are even going like, well, I don't understand what the heck is going on here. <laughs> you know, and he's like a system guy, you know, it's yep. like didn't, there's very few people who understand this stuff really well because it's freaking hard. So I, I totally applaud this and all of that stuff just goes away. There is no reason to use thread objects and weight handles and Imoa. Right, unless you're doing just incredibly low-level systems programming and you really need fine-grained control over this and that, which represents a very, 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 very small percentage of right. the population, um, you should stick at these you know, these high-level program models. And what I think what's really cool is you look at, we, we've, we've been saying this for a few years now, and in .NET 4, we introduced the, the task parallel library, system.threading.tasks, right. and we kind of, we, we started saying, look, you know, the tasks are the way forward. Stop using threads. Just you know, use tasks unless you absolutely, for some odd reason, need to drop back to use threads. Right. And now folks can kind of see where we're going with that. Now that you have these task objects that can represent CPU work, they can represent I/O work. Now they become these things that you can await. So if you just represent all of your asynchrony through tasks, you get this first-class language for support for awaiting them, and you regain your control flow. That's just great. Well, and just make the code consumable you know wading through a morass a callback code just like so what happens it's it's almost unreadable code well and it's so unreadable that most folks don't go there they end up even though asynchrony can result in especially on the server can result in much better scalability uh it was the, the code is so hard to to write and once you've written it it's basically write once read never Right. Um, the, a lot of functions that should have been written asynchronously are just never exposed that way because it's too complicated. If you look even in the .NET framework, I mean, there's a lot of really talented developers that build the .NET framework itself. Um, but some things are so costly to do from a test and engineering perspective, they just don't get done. You look at like the stream reader class, one of the more fundamental types in, right. in the IO namespace. Yeah. Um, and while the underlying stream type provides begin read, end read, begin write, end write, Stream Reader only provides methods like the synchronous read to end. There is no today asynchronous read to end. Yeah. And if you look at the implementation of read to end, you can kind of get a sense for why. It's just the, the, the kinds of control flow constructs that are used in it, such as you know short circuit evaluation uh, and loops and things like that. If you have to express those using the asynchronous constructs that we have uh, before you have language support, it's a nightmare of, of coding to get it done uh, correctly and efficiently. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. You also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft Client for Facebook Beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. 
Face Deck has a nice, elegant black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag and drop operation from your file system to your Face Deck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, Face Deck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And of course, it's free. Try it at facedeck.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And if you think about it, having the um, having anything disk-based on another thread, you know, um, unless you've got a lot of disk activity going on at the same time, but that's not usually the bottleneck, is it? Uh, right. In particular, um, you know, we're moving into more of this connected world where you might say, I want to access my disk, and that may have used to be fast, but now your disk could be Azure, right? It could be right. something that's incredibly remote with incredibly high latencies, um, and all you're doing is you're pulling up an open file dialog, bo dialog box to let the user choose a file, right. and you might have made assumptions about it only taking a, half a millisecond to come back, but it might take four seconds to come back. And yeah. in that time, if you've blocked your UI thread, maybe users never used to notice because who notices a millisecond, but you sure, you know, sure as heck notice four seconds. And the other thing, the other thing I was trying to say there was, let's say you have, you're reading two large files and they're both on the same disk. Does that make sense to do asynchronously? Well, it can actually. Well, uh, um, yeah, it depends again on you know where where the data is stored. Uh, the OS can do, and and the disk drivers can do uh, special things in terms of how they um, right. organize when the reads happen. True. Uh, so you can actually get better throughput by launching multiple operations asynchronously. And in fact, under the covers, the OS may actually turn things that you asked for asynchronous and. Uh, asynchronously into synchronous operations if right. it feels that that's better for you. Um, right. If you have multiple platters and, and arms and all of that stuff, then yes, you can read multiple things at the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, you never really know what the operating system is going to do for you anyway. Right. right. I mean, the, the, the high-level message is if something, um, if you can express everything that could be asynchronous uh, and you allow the system to you know, the underlying resources to paralyze as best it can, you're, you'll probably be in a good situation. It, that um, sort of hints at the idea of, is there an overhead to invoking all this asynchronousy that, you know, given a situation where it absolutely will end up serial, you're actually slower because you did do this? There are certainly such cases. You know, the, the finer grain you make the operation, the more the overhead shows up. I mean, imagine you were writing a function that, 50% of the time needed to go out and make a web service call right. uh, in order to get some data, and 50% of the time could hit a table stored in memory and just return the results. Yeah. Right. So if you're returning a heap-allocated object to represent that stuff, uh, for the times when you're allocating that to represent the web service call, it's 100% negligible. The time that you're allocating it to represent some value that you're pulling out of a dictionary, right? there's some overhead there. Um, and so we we try and do some things uh, within both the compiler and the library to make that more efficient. Um, but the the finer grained and the the cheaper the operation gets, the more the overhead shows up. And that shows up too, just for you know regular old parallel parallelism. Right? If if I have uh, some amount of work to be done, I want to process ten things. If they're all really really heavyweight, um, it makes a lot of sense to just you know, spin each one up as a task or use a parallel loop to process them, and we'll handle spreading it out across all the cores. And the overhead of taking the data, divvying it up, handing it out to each of the cores, launching the work items, bringing the results back together, joining yada yada yada, right? That's all negligible overhead compared to the benefits that you get from running this thing in parallel. 
But if the work that you were doing was really, really tiny, you had just a few elements and you weren't doing much processing per element, now that overhead of just synchronizing between multiple threads starts to show up, especially if you do it many, many, many times over. Um, so you, you do have to kind of keep these things in mind, and, and this sort of functionality is typically better for uh, chunkier operations rather than chattier ones, mm-hmm. as is normally the case when you're doing any kind of cross-boundary work. Right. Um, and you, know, you, you still kind of have to keep in mind you're not going to do this just to add two numbers together. Um, but for the most part, you know, when, you're, when you're trying to build either responsive systems where you've got a lot of work happening on your, uh, in your UI and you're reading from files or launching web services, um, the overhead is typically less important than uh, keeping the UI responsive so users don't get frustrated. Um, and server-side, while there may be some overhead to doing this, uh, a lot of times the scalability benefits that you get from not blocking threads that could otherwise be servicing new incoming requests and then issuing the web service call that you need to satisfy that request or the database operation, whatever it may be, yeah. uh, the benefits that you get from expressing as much asynchronously as possible uh, can be significant. Well, I'm very excited that finally we have some... Uh, mechanisms for doing this kind of stuff there that seems to fit uh, 80 to 90 percent of the kind of asynchronous programming that I do. Um, what about server-side programming? What about handling multiple requests and uh, you know and handling those on different threads? Is that this is that the same kind of thing that this is good for? Yeah, this is this is good for pretty much any kind of. Um uh, server-side asynchrony. So um, one of the things that you know shows up a lot server-side is you have something like ASP.NET or WCF and IIS, or you have a lot of different requests coming in, and each of them gets processed. You do some churning, and you spit out a result. And under the covers, the, the system typically kind of dedicates a thread from a request comes in, it pulls out a thread from the thread pool, uh, processes the request, and sends back the results. But it's rare these days that server-side, all you're doing is just a little bit of computation and spitting back a result. More likely, you're hitting a database, you're hitting a web service, you're hitting four different web services to compose some kind of result to mash up and send a result back. Um, and if I sit there and I block the, you know, if I'm in ASP.NET and let's say I have 100 threads uh, and I've got 100 requests that come in and I block all 100 threads in my thread pool, um, waiting for some outbound web service call that I've made. Now I've got a whole bunch of incoming requests to my server that are sitting there uh, and you know, are unable to make forward progress, when in reality, uh, or when uh, a better solution would have been to just asynchronously fire off those requests to the web services, and in the meantime, I can go and then see what those other incoming requests wanted. Maybe yeah. they just wanted some kind of local computation. I can do it and, and send them on their merry way. Or maybe they themselves wanted access to some other web service, so I can initiate that asynchronously yeah. and only deal with the previous requests when the, the previously issued asynchronous operations come back. So I get a lot more of overlapping and reuse of my threads to get better throughput overall. Um, it, similarly, if, if a, simil, a single request comes in and it needs access to four different web services, I can uh, issue all four of those outbound web service requests at the same time. Right, I can overlap all the I.O., I have, in effect, an infinite amount of bandwidth in terms of from me to whatever those remote servers are. Uh, and so I can just issue them all at the same time uh, and not worry about you know uh, making them serially, or which would just add significantly to the overall latency of the operation. So in the, in this, uh, with this await support, um, I can 
basically just say, you know, contact the web service, and for each one I get back a task or a task of results, whatever it may be, representing these web service calls. And then I can just say await when all, passing in the four tasks. Uh, And now not only am I not blocking a thread on my server and allow it to go back and process other things, but I'm uh, greatly increasing the throughput because I've overlapped all of my calls to the outgoing servers, and I'm not going to allow the incoming request to continue its processing until all those results are back. Right. Hey, Stephen, when you've got a situation just like you've described, bunch of web services, all asynchronously calling on an, on an await all, can I put a timeout in place and say, hey, after 30 seconds, let me know so I can fail to say, okay, that was too long? Yeah, there are a variety of ways you can do it. Um, in the CTP, uh, one of the ways we were showing was the, on the on the task class or in the in the um, in the CTP, we called it task X because we couldn't add static methods to the existing .NET 4.0 MS Corelib. Um, so we had this method task X dot delay, which gives you back a task that will complete in n milliseconds. Uh, so I can just say task dot when any, uh, and pass in the task representing the real operation and a task dot delay representing how long I want to wait for, right. and then that when any when any will complete either when the delay completes or when the um, or when the actual operation completes, then I can determine which one it was and you know do something based on that. Right. So then I can decide how many did I actually get back. Maybe even go into a recovery process, say let's retry the one that didn't make it, that kind of thing. But at least I know after a certain amount of time, you know something's not working. Exactly. And you can easily wrap that into a with timeout, you know, extension method where you could await t dot with timeout. Sure. Uh, or you know various kinds of uh, abstractions like that. One of the cool things I think this highlights is once you have this task or task of T results class that represents any asynchronous operation, whether that's a call out to a web service or a, a timer firing, um, you can then write combinators over that task or task of T result class, such as when any or when all, things that take in some number of tasks and return you some number of tasks. And you, these now become um, useful for whatever operations you're dealing with. Right? If I wanted to uh, previously write something that read from a file and read uh, read from two files, and when they both completed, uh, called me back, I would have to build that based on kind of the the async callback mechanism or the specific async results that were handed back by those particular read operations. Now I can just write this that works with any set of tasks. I just give it a set of tasks, and it tells you when they're all done or when any of them are done. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether I'm reading from a file or reading from a web service or sending someone an email or waiting for a timer to expire. Uh, it's all task-based. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's just a set of tasks one way or the other. Exactly. I've, I've run into these situations in the old create thread days where, you know, you spin up uh, an asynchronous task and it just never comes back Mm -hmm. and you almost can't kill it like it's gone it's gotten away from you right yeah so i mean there are a couple different kinds of of tasks you can have in tpl um one kind of task is sort of a a compute bound task um and another is sort of an io bound task but at the end of the day all a task really is is kind of a holder for some synchronization and a result. Mm-hmm. And that synchronization is being able to basically complete the task to say, hey, you're now done. And anyone who I've handed you out to, they can wait on you, they could hook up callbacks, whatever it may be. And I, at some point in the future, I'm just going to call back to you and say, you're done. That could be 
this compute bound work you queued up to the thread pool, uh, eventually running and, and calling set results on the task to say, hey, you're done, or set exception to say you're done, but you failed. Or mm-hmm. it could be some IO operation that finally gets the result back off the wire and shoves that into the task. Um, either way, you know, you, you do need to make sure that someone completes that task, because otherwise, if you're asynchronously or synchronously waiting for it to complete, you're never going to wake up since you're never going to get that signal. Uh, And that's where that kind of timeout functionality can be useful. You send off a web service request and the web server's down, uh, but it's, you know, it it pretends that it's up. So it just sits there and says, oh yeah, I got your request. I'll get to it in a minute. And it never does. Yeah. Something bad happens, you know, not an obvious failure. And that's why systems like ASP.NET and WCF both have built in timeout functionality where they can say, you know what, after 30 seconds, we're just going to give up waiting. We're going to we're going to say that there was a timeout. You can do whatever you want in that case, but we're not going to hold up the the web server just because some remote thing you're talking to is down. Right. I got a question for you. Does the async CTP give you any better way to synchronize access to a shared resource? And what I mean by that is, let's say you've got a uh, you know some sort of collection of data. Maybe it's a a, a list of you know, messages that have come in through a messaging system. And uh, in each thread that comes in to access that thing, you might want to add something to that list or access the entire list. So you're still doing sort of the, the, the classic sync or lock or sync lock in Visual Basic, classic locking and unlocking. Um, is there anything that simplifies access to that or is that uh, simple enough? No, I, I, uh, there, there is. Um, so taking a, a brief step back uh, in .NET 4, and we added a whole bunch of, um, in addition to the task parallel library and parallel link, we added a bunch of concurrent collections that try and um, abstract away some of the underlying synchronization, uh, the, the kinds of things you're talking about. So I can just read and write from a dictionary, and most of the time I don't need to think about locking the dictionary, reading from it, or locking the dictionary, writing to it, and so on. We don't need to get the sync root anymore? Right, exactly. Uh, hopefully, you, you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, these, the, the current con- the concurrent collections we have in .NET four, um, they're they're atomic for. Uh, they're sort of you don't need to do your own synchronization for basically um, one operation. Like I'm, I'm going to uh, NQ into a concurrent queue or DQ from a concurrent queue, or with a dictionary, I'm going to add or remove or update things like that. When you still need to kind of do your own locking or, or build your own synchronization is if you want to do any kind of compound operations. I want to add to two dictionaries and make sure that both adds together are atomic. Or I want to add three different values into the, right. into the collection atomically. Those sorts of compound operations. Because really you need to synchronize blocks of code. Right. To do and that. And so for those kinds of situations, you might need to fall back to doing your own locking with something like, um, you know, sync root, although I, I don't really like that pattern very much. Yeah, um, I never really understood it either because the documentation wasn't clear in terms of, you know, it says all the co- that all collections are, um, what does it say, that, they're, um, they, that they are or are not accessible in a multi-thread, uh, I can't remember exactly what they said, but the docs were pretty unclear. Yeah. One of the things that, where I wanted to head with, the, with your question, though, is um, in, the, in the async CTP, and either just before or just after this, our, our, phone, our, our phone call airs, um, we should have it available as a, a separate installer as well. There's um, a DLL buried in the async CTP um, named system.threading.tasks.dataflow.dll, uh, which is something that we're referring to as TPL Dataflow. 
uh, and you can kind of think of it as kind of a new member to the parallel extensions family. You know, .NET 4, we had TPL or the Task Parallel Library. We had Parallel Link. We had the concurrent collections. And now uh, for the next release, we have this thing called TPL Dataflow, which builds on top of TPL and concurrent collections and so on to encapsulate a lot of these kinds of message passing, kind of in-process message passing and um, management of buffered data and the processing of that buffered data mm-hmm. that you, I think you were kind of alluding to or referring to. Yeah. So I can have uh, uh, something, for example, called an action block. Mm-hmm. And you can think of an action block as being um, a buffer and then uh, also uh, a bunch of tasks that the action block manages to process the data in that buffer. Okay, so for um, example, if you if you wanted to, in a thread, iterate through the items in this collection, take every one of these messages and send them somewhere, every one of those is an individual read, and in between that, you don't want some other thread coming along and sticking something in and messing up your for loop is that what you would, so you would make a little uh, um a little routine that basically does that iteration and re- and does that thing and that would be a an atomic operation is that what you're saying well you can do that with the the concurrent collections in .NET 4 so for example oh, we'll, with concurrent queue and concurrent stack concurrent bag and concurrent dictionary you're able to enumerate those collections even while people are contributing to them so the enumeration um, process is 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 one block that's synchronized right so the um, with concurrent queue concurrent stack and concurrent bag um, the moment you start enumerating, you get a snapshot that represents the the collection at the moment in time that you basically called move ne- or get enumerator on mm. the on the collection or on the collections enumerable. Um, and so, if I have a concurrent queue, the moment I call get enumerator, um, it doesn't matter who adds or removes things from the collection after that. When I enumerate, I will still see what the collection looked like at the moment that I called get oh, enumerator. That on. is sweet. I mean, that's um, the kind of stuff that drove me crazy in the past. Right, and if you tried to do that with a list or some other non-thread-safe collection, oh, it would actually throw an exception when you tried to do that because it's saying someone else is modifying this collection out from under you. Right. It's very likely not what you intended. Boom. You can even um, sort of see, allude to that when you're using link and you don't create a variable to hold the list and then you try to access the list in your, right. yeah, in your link query and it says, uh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, concurrent dictionary is a little bit different because the scenarios for concurrent dictionary are uh, typically more you, you use it as some sort of central cache or something, and you want to be able to enumerate your cache even while other folks are kind of contributing to it. Hmm. Um, and right. so it's not uh, a snapshot, but you're still allowed to enumerate while folks are removing and adding and whatnot, and it'll be, it'll be safe. Nothing's going to blow up, right. but you may or may not see the things uh, that were being added or removed. Right, which in general, it really doesn't matter. Right. You just don't want, you know, the typical issue is you do, you know, for for i as integer equals one to, uh, you know, I, or zero to uh, items dot count minus one, and then anywhere in there, if the count increases or decreases, or increases really, you can, you can really get screwed up. Right. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. 
Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. So the, the, the data flow library I was referring to isn't so much for those kinds of situations. It's more for producer-consumer situations where you've got some number of threads or workers or processes of whatever it may be that are contributing data that needs to be processed. So you might create this action block, uh, and anyone can just come along and post to that action block, which in effect puts the, the data into that action block's buffer. And then the action block under the covers will say, hey, I see that I've got more data. I'm going to spin up some tasks to process that data as efficiently as I can. Yeah. So it's responsible for spinning up tasks when it needs them, spinning them down when they're no longer necessary, uh, for managing concurrency level, for managing you know, buffer size, uh, you know, for doing things, for throttling and, and all that kind of good stuff that you need in these sort of producer-consumer scenarios. And then you're able to, there are a bunch of different of these data flow blocks that are included, and you can chain them together to create linear or nonlinear networks of processing where data just kind of flows through the system uh, and gets processed as, as fast as possible. Uh-huh. And then the reason it's included in the async CTP is um, there are, uh, it kind of rounds out a lot of the kinds of asynchronous code you might need to write where you might want to write a, uh, an asynchronous method that just awaits the next piece of data in a buffer and when it's available, it continues on and processes it, and then it goes back and awaits the next piece of data in the buffer. And so you can just say await buffer dot receive async, and the um, using this await functionality, your thread can go off and do other things, and you're not actually blocking any threads while you're awaiting. But as soon as data gets added to the buffer, your await will wake up, and your your function will continue running, processing the data that was atomically removed from the from the collection. Oh, wow, that's just great. Oh man. <laughs> hey, Stephen, can I talk a little bit about the whole threading, parallel processing side of this? Absolutely. When, so suppose we go back to that scenario you were describing where you were spinning up multiple emailings mm-hmm. and, and you essentially allowing these to be asynchronous tasks. Do they actually spread across all of the processors in your computer? Well, it depends on what those tasks are doing. So, and it, which really means it depends on how they're implemented. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's say... The implementation of send email um, was just to create a little packet of data, um, you know, op- uh, open up some TCP connection and send the packet of data out across that connection. Um, very likely, the work involved in creating that packet is minimal. So you might even have that work be done synchronously at the beginning of your send async function, just because right. it's so little work. Um, it would be more work to spin up uh, some some tasks to run it on a different CPU. Right. Um, but then as soon as that, that packet has been put onto the wire, put onto the network, your send async function can return to you and say, you know, here's a task that represents the eventual completion of that packet being received and maybe getting some kind of ACK back in response. Um, so there's really nothing there to be spread out across multiple cores because you haven't really launched any kind of compute-bound work. There, there may be a brief moment in time when the ACK come back, comes back from the server and that gets posted to some I.O. completion port somewhere, which causes the thread pool to very briefly spin up a work item simply to take that result and shove it into the task, you know, a few cycles worth of, of, of work. Um, so in those cases, it's not really going to spread itself out across the CPUs because there's not really anything to be executed by the right. CPUs. But in contrast, maybe you have a function called, um, maybe a function called download movie async and a function called mashup movies async. And so maybe you you download two different movies asynchronously, and then uh, when you get the results back, you pass them the movies into your mix your mashup function um, that's going to blend them together or something like that. Um, so you could await 
mash up async from your UI thread, and you're going to allow your UI thread to then be responsive, and you know people can still click buttons and stuff. But in the background, that mashup probably spun up some tasks because that work of blending two movies is incredibly compute bound, uh, and so it's going to be spreading itself as um, as the developer of that function uh, desired across multiple cores. Now, I mean, obviously, so your answer is it is possible without specifically saying so that it, that your app is going to spread across all the cores in your machine. I guess I'm trying to figure out how it knows when to do it and when not to do it. It's still very explicit. I mean, if you if that mashup function that that mashup function for example may have been written to say task.run and inside the task.run may be used a parallel loop. So, you know, task.run okay. parallel 4 or something like that. So, you're still being explicit about here's where I want to create a new task that's going to get processed on some CPU. And inside that task, I'm going to run a parallel loop, which itself is going to take advantage of multiple CPUs. Um, but the caller of the function, all the caller of the function knows is, hey, I've got a function that returns me a task. And so it's not going to block my current thread. Maybe it's going to use some other threads to do processing, or maybe it's going to go out across the network. All I know is that it's going to return to me very quickly and give me a handle that represents the future completion of that operation. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I, I just... I'm wondering how it knows when those things are worth i mean it's explicit you've asked for parallelism but how it decides to execute a given task uh in the current processor or it's worth expending the context switch to go to other ones oh i see so let's let's forget io for the moment and just focus on if i just call task.run a lot of times you know right. how does it know when to spread those things out yeah so um and and let's We'll focus just on the thread pool because, uh, in, we have in, in the task power library, we have this concept, this abstract concept of a task scheduler mm -hmm. yep. where you get to basically write your own execution mechanism. In effect, we just hand the tasks to you right. and you get to decide when and where to run them. And obviously I can't speak to how all the various implementations of that might work because you're, you're writing them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the built in one that we have for the thread pool uses what are called, uh, work stealing queues. Um, and basically, there every thread in the pool has its own queue, its own local queue, and then there's also a global queue for the whole pool. Uh, and if you're outside of the pool and you queue up work, basically that just goes into this global queue, and all the threads in the pool are sitting idle, uh, likely blocked on one of those wait handles that Carl mentioned, um, and are waiting for work to arrive. And as soon as it does, they get signaled, and one of them wakes up and says, "Hey, it's mine," and you know goes off, grabs it from the queue, and processes it. Um, now, if the work comes from inside the pool, such as if that work item that that thread grabbed and started processing starts generating more work items or more tasks, um, those tasks will actually get queued up into the local queue uh, for that thread. And the nice thing here is um, if all of the threads in the pool are busy doing things, um, all of those tasks are just basically enqueued in, in this very cheap operation uh, without a whole lot of synchronization onto the local queue. And then when the when the thread finishes processing that work item, it can just go back to its local queue and, again, very efficiently just pop off some of those work items that it pushed and continue processing. So, in effect, it's just, you know, putting them aside and then coming back to process them. The nice thing of putting them into these, into these local queues, though, or what are called work-stealing queues, is if other threads in the pool aren't busy and they're sitting there idle looking for things to do, after checking the global queue, they can go and look at their the other threads' local queues to say, "Hey, uh, is anyone kind of overburdened with work? If so, let me help steal that work from you so that I can help you process it." So, work is preferred to be processed by the thread that created it, but if that thread gets bogged down, other threads can come along and, and pull it off to to assist. 
Well, and what I like about that is rather than do this sort of top-level scheduler where your primary execution path is wasting time shoving work out to these different queues, these queues, because they have nothing better to do, are going off looking for work. Exactly. And this is, uh, this is also how like, Parallel 4 and Parallel 4 each are implemented. Right. Imagine you're, yeah. in, you're in ASP.NET, for example, and you wanted to use, you, um, you're using a library that happens to use a parallel loop internally. Well, if I've got a very busy ASP.NET server, um, if my Parallel 4 simply launched a whole bunch of tasks and put them into the global queue, which coincidentally is the same queue that incoming ASP.NET requests are coming into, mm-hmm. then I'm in effect forcing ASP.NET to parallelize my loop because I'm proactively generating all these tasks, which are going to be treated fairly with regards to other incoming uh, web, web requests to the server. But if instead the Parallel 4 puts, all, puts its tasks kind of into its local queue, and ASP.NET prefers to go and look at the global queue to process the next request, then if the server is heavily burdened, your Parallel Loop uh, is correctly going to be uh, just process single-threaded. Only once right. the server stops being pounded by incoming requests will threads become idle and will get a, you know, a breather and an opportunity to go and look beyond the global queue to other local queues to help out. And only then will your parallel loop automatically spread itself out across available cores. That's totally awesome. You know, like I, I know, Carl, you had this moment where you're talking about the completion mechanisms and how nice they were. Yeah. I've just had totally geeked out on the processor side. That is such a better way to do it. Well, this. yeah. And now, Richard, think about what we've been talking about. You know, we're waiting for the parallel tools to come along to make it easy to, to deal with parallel programming. We thought, you know, functional programming was it. And, you know, we thought uh, the task parallel library was it. And now what do you think? Well, I mean, the, the issue here to me is it's still quite explicit. It's, you're not presuming that everything, it, it seems to me that the ultimate dream world we want to get to is code is implicitly parallel, explicitly serial. That, and that's exactly what we got here. Well, no, no it's still explicit. It says you are using functions that are specifically parallel. You still say, make this parallel if you can. Oh, oh, but you you need both. I mean, some operations are synchronous and some are asynchronous, and you need to just, at the very least, be able to say which are which. But don't you think that, that that's the answer? I mean, because the millions and bajillions of developers out there already know their patterns for programming. We're not going to teach them new patterns. It's pretty obvious that programmers don't come and fit themselves to the computer's desires and in, in the way of the computer. It's got to come the other way. I mean, it's got to be an object-oriented solution. Stephen, what do you think? Is there further to go here? Well, you know, we, we've played... I, there, there certainly is further to go. It's, it's not like we, we release this and then I do the whole blackjack dealer, wipe my hands clean and leave. Yeah, you're table. done. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, what are people, exa- uh, what are people uh, still asking for? Well, I mean, so this is still a, a very, you know, uh, as was said, a very explicit model, which has been done on purpose. I mean, there's the, dr- there's the, the dream of just having the system automatically paralyzed and everything be safe, but still take advantage of all your CPUs. And, and, you know, that's still a ways off. Um, but even, even with this async model that we've added to C sharp and visual basic, um, it's still explicit. You know, you could have imagined us saying, uh, and the compiler could certainly do this. If you call a function that returns a task, we'll implicitly await it. Yeah. Right. You could, we could, but now imagine you were writing your UI function and you, um, you say, um, you know, when a button is clicked, I want to um, start some kind of 
some start some computation or some call running, and I'm going to have a progress bar and, and whatnot. Right. And I'm going um, and those are asynchronous operations that are being called. Well, the kind of the the opposite, or not the opposite, but one of the things that you want from asynchrony is responsiveness in your UI right. thread. But responsiveness means the user is able to interact with my form again, which right. means they can click the button again. Right. Right. So if we implicitly awaited that asynchronous operation and gave control back to the user, it's not clear to the developer that, hey, here's a point where you can have interleavings. Here's a point where your invariants are broken. Here's a point where your form is visible, you know, and, and someone can, can interact with Unless it. Unless you're smart enough to know that, you know, these are the inputs that get to this particular method. Those inputs are now disabled, a button, a menu, a key, you know, those are now disabled. Therefore, we can do it asynchronous. Right. But again, that, that requires the developer to, to know that they have to protect those invariants. They know that w- when this button is called, they have to say button enabled is you know, equals false. Right. Um, and then in a try catch block or in a try finally block in there, finally restore the button back to its normal visibility. But I mean, if, is, if, that, if, is if, it out if, of the realm of possibility that you guys would actually reach up and disable that button? Well, how do we know that that's the right thing to do, though? Well, I mean, yeah. it's really application logic that says when this operation is running, we, we don't want the user to be able to click the button again. There right. are certain operations where you very much would want them to, right? Yeah, you might, want really... an, you might want an asynchronous button. Whatever this button launches, you know, needs to be uh, atomic. Right, I mean, it's, and it's really, you know, it could be that there, you only want the user to, to do one of these things at a time, in yeah. which case you'd want the button disabled. Or it may be that, you you know there's a text box and uh, anytime the user types a different um, email yeah. address into the text box, you allow them to click the button again, even your point if the previous is, email is still outgoing. Yeah, your point is well made, which is it's always complex, and the user has to handle the UI enabling and disabling. The programmer has to do do that rather. Right, there's and no, for no other reason than there's no way for the application to understand the designer's intent. Right, I mean the. There's just business logic that could be done a myriad of ways, and it's up to the application developer to specify which one it should be. So what's next? What's, what are the next things that you guys are working on, if you can just give us a hint? Yeah, so, I mean, we're still, you know, the, this async stuff still hasn't shipped, so <laughs> um, we're still working pretty hard on that. Uh, we're working pretty hard on this data flow library. Um, uh, our, my parallel computing platform team is part of a larger organization at Microsoft called the Technical Computing Group. Uh, which is very much focused at enabling, you know, kind of the, mo- the most, um, well, all the scientists and engineers and students and everyone else out there that's solving these really big, gnarly problems, you know, um, curing AIDS, fighting malaria, uh, predicting weather patterns, pr- you know, predicting the markets, uh, whatever it may be. There's a lot of really compute-bound uh, operations out there and that that require kind of domain specialist knowledge. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the things we're looking at are how do we enable developers, IT professionals, and domain specialists alike to really tackle this next generation of, of world-impacting problems. Um, and so some of the things, you know, the asynchrony and the data flow and uh, the stuff that we have for, for managed native code is, is targeting that. Uh, we're we're working on something uh, that originally started in MSR, and we're kind of bringing pr- to production called um, Dryad and Dryad Link, which is a link implementation uh, that automatically is, is scales out to a cluster and eventually the cloud. Um, so you can write your data or compute-intensive uh, link query to process 
terabytes or petabytes of data and not just run it on your local machine, but hit F5 and have it automatically spread out to your 2,000 nodes in your cluster or, or whatever it may be. We did a show uh, with Michael Eisard on Dryad two exactly. years ago now, three yeah, years so ago. It's, it's been used internally for a long time at Microsoft to process you know, um, uh, a variety of kinds of research problems and even um, uh, funnel some, uh, do a lot of computation for products that we've actually shipped um, to kind of uh, do a lot of the upfront work that we need done. Um, but now we're, we're looking to kind of take it outside of Microsoft and enable other folks to, to enjoy its goodness. Awesome. Um, so we're working on things like that. We're looking at how can we better enable uh, usage of GPUs. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff we've done thus far has really been focused on um, homogenous CPU-based computing. Right. Um, but GPUs for specific types of problems can offer 10x or even 100x kind of uh, performance increases for really number-crunching intensive applications. And so how do we enable programming models that allow you to program your GPUs uh, very similar to how you program your CPUs? Awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. It's very exciting stuff, and, you know, I've been playing with it for a little while, and I think it's just, I think it's, it's just amazing. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I hope folks do play with it. We, we do love feedback, so if your, your listeners or you yourselves want to send us some comments, things you like, things you don't like, uh, we'd love to hear it. Great. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on Networks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van by the FCC.